Welcome to the ENA Podcast. This is the ENA Podcast, and I'm Dan Campana, the Director of Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming you back to the latest episode of the podcast. And today it's all about nursing research and ways to make it seem unscary and something that, uh, you know, even if you've never thought about it, it may get you start starting to think about it. And the two folks that are going to help carry us on this ride today to talk about, uh, um, you know, really how to get introduced to the idea of it and, and some of the finer points, all leading up to what is going to be a really engaging uh, series of, of shorter podcasts coming up soon that is really going to walk people who are interested in research to get from start to finish um, in a lot of different ways. And so taking us on the ride today, we've got the Director of Emergency Nursing Research, Lisa Wolf, joining us, as well as Paul Clark, who is the Emergency Nursing Research Advisory Council Chairperson for 2021. Lisa and Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So um, I'll start with Lisa. You know, let's talk a little bit of background. I mean, uh, anybody who's been around ENA certainly, you know, has heard your name. They know what you're about. Uh, give us a little snapshot of, you know, you and your relationship to research. I mean, was research something that found you or did you find it in the context of emergency nursing? So I kind of like to think of myself as a professional pain in the ass, which is what research allows you to do. And this started when I was a night educator circling around looking for trouble. This is, I don't know, 2004, 2005. And um, I was a trauma coordinator. And so I was looking at charts. And back in the day when we wrote on paper, um, you could see the location of the patient, you know, on their triage where, you know, where we put them. And so I'm looking through all these trauma charts and I'm seeing that we are admitting people to the ICU from the hallway and from fast track. And I can't figure out like, why are we doing that? So I look through all the charts, probably a hundred charts that, that this has happened to over the previous couple of years. And I find that like, huh, they're all over 55. They all have a visible head injury and they're all anticoagulated. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. So I went and started looking stuff up. Like, is this a thing? Um, and found that what I found kind of aligned with what was in the literature. Um, and so I published it. I was like, hey, this, this is important to know. It changed practice at our hospital. Um, uh, it got published. So it was out in the, uh, in the literature, like out as evidence. So other people could go to their directors and say, hey, we should change our triage protocols to account for these people. Um, and so I saw very early on in a very like profound way that if you go digging, you can affect change in your practice environment. So, so Paul, that's fun. <laughs> well, Paul, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, you know, did you find research or did research find you as something that, you know, would be a next step or something else that you could do within uh, the emergency nursing world? So research kind of found me. And it's funny because Lisa, I didn't realize that our journey started about the same time. So in 2004, I was working at uh, an emergency department down in San Antonio, and I was working with this really cool emergency department nurse, Nancy McGowan. And Nancy kept saying, you should think about teaching. You're a really good teacher. And I'm like, I'm going to be a doctor of nursing practice. I'm going to do critical care, emergency care. I said, you know, that's my thing. She was like, you should think about that. And Dr. Mickey Parsons from <laughs> the University of Texas uh, uh, San Antonio School of Nursing and I started doing some research projects together on how to improve 
the workplace environment and the emergency department. And we did a, we did a project in my emergency department that fixed retention, call-ins, it flipped our quality. We weren't doing quality scores, but they were measuring employee uh, engagement at the time. I mean, it made such a huge difference. And I was like, well, this is really cool. Like we did, we inserted knowledge and generated some knowledge and we came up with a process and it really fixed things. And it made the ER such a pleasure to work. I mean, it was nice before, but it made it great, even when it was on a hard day. So I went to graduate school. They encouraged me. I decided, okay, I'll do this PhD thing. Went to graduate school, um, got a teaching job, and then applied for a tenure job and was like, hey, what's tenure about? And they're like, you have to develop a program of research. And I'm like, what's that mean? And they're like, <laughs> let us show you. So, <laughs> so it's, you know, some people get in, they, they get their doctoral degree, they get into a postdoctoral fellowship, they mine in a path and they generate knowledge. And I've just kind of, um, kind of, just kind of moved along stepwise. I think one of the biggest um, um, parts that really helped me get further down the emergency department research line was getting involved with um, the Emergency Nursing Research Advisory Council. And we've done so many fabulous research studies that have helped us understand why does bullying occur? And why do people behave the way that they do? And why aren't we asking better questions at triage about certain things? And then we put that knowledge out there and people are citing it, right? Which doesn't massage my ego at all. It could get cited a thousand times, but if it's not doing any good, it doesn't make a difference to me. But I know it's making a difference because I'm looking at the articles that were cited in and they're they're building on what we've done. So the foundation that we've laid, like all good research groups, um, is it it's really kind of both helped me develop that research trajectory or, or direction. And it's like made me excited about research. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two things that that you're that you're talking about, Paul, that are really important to to talk about. One is that we do really good work as a group. Right. Like doing research all by yourself is challenging because you're in like this echo chamber. Right. Like you can't get out of your own way. But when you have two, three, five, you know, people who are doing kind of the same work or have the same experiences, then you can check each other and you can expand what you're thinking and you can really put it out there. And, and I think also like you and I both have this triangle. Right. So you've got education, practice and research and if you're teaching and doing research and practicing every it's an iterative loop all the way right so this is part of the reason i maintain a clinical practice is so that as slow as i am right like i'm on the ground and i can see um sometimes what the questions are right which then feed back into the education which then changes practice so it's this really important loop and i think paul your point about people who like are totally headed down that I will only do research, right, without really doing the practice part of the education part. I think there's a place for that. But I also think that the best clinically important research happens when it's done by people who have a clinical practice or a clinical presence. Mm -hmm. what, yes. uh, I would say what, what jumps out at me, and, and you answered a question before I got to it. So it means that you're good research gurus because you anticipated where the questions were going to go and you brought some of the information forward already. It was really the idea of why does it matter? And, and you've touched on a couple of things that really jump out, which is 
it does inform other these other pieces. So to, to Lisa's point, the example of the triangle, it, you know, the research does inform that, you know, keeps that loop going, if I can put a loop into a triangle, but it's keeping those connections mm -hmm. flowing from one to the other. And it's not just all in one direction. I imagine it flows, you know, back and forth in different ways. But it, it, the, the whole idea that jumps out at me and, and having done some interviews with folks that have been published in the Journal of Emergency Nursing, they see not only how they can affect change elsewhere, but they also see the value of sharing change that they've experienced and being able to describe a little of what their results have meant as a way to inform others. I mean, and that's just scratching the surface of the ways that research can make a difference. Uh, Paul, would you agree with that? Or does research you know, have to be as complicated as some people might think it is? Or can you make it as simple as I have a problem I want to fix or I've noticed something, what does it really mean? I think it depends on if you reach if it depends on your personality and it depends on your resources. So I, there are some people that I have known that have figured out a problem that they want to solve in the emergency department and they are driven like a hurricane and they know the right people and they design a good study and maybe they get a couple resources and they get a project done and they generate that knowledge and publish it like that does happen. I think for the majority of people like me, when I see a problem, I'm like, I wonder how we can fix that. And I've, I've partnered with like people in the university or a nurse educator that has, you know, master's level, maybe a PhD, maybe a DNP, who knows how to manage the research process, knows about the institutional review board, knows how to build the questions, knows what a PICO question is, which is, you know, how you, it's a, it's an acronym to help you build your research question. They know all those details. Like the way I think of it is, it's like a research Sherpa, right? So a Sherpa, like I fly into the to Tibet, right? And I'm gonna climb the Himalayas, but I don't know the language. I don't know the weather conditions. I don't know what that mountain is like. So I hire some Sherpas because they know the local language. They know the customs. They know how to get up the mountain. They know when to stay in camp because on a brilliant sunny day, it's like, let's climb. And it's like, snow's coming. It's like, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant day. Let's climb. They're like, camp snow's coming and by noon it's a blizzard and we'd have been dead if we'd have been halfway up that that next you know to the next camp next base i think for for most of us finding that research sherpa um whether it's at a university somebody in your facility some resource is critical in solving that problem that you might find in the research and in, in the emergency department right lisa i was going to say for you um you know in that example so Paul's already talking about getting to the camp, getting to Tibet to get that Sherpa to get you up the mountain, but getting people convinced that they even want to get near a mountain is probably, you know, probably a challenge in itself. So, you know, our mountain in this case is research. So when you, what are, what are some of the most common things you hear of or see, or, you know, just over, over the last several years, um, you know, what keeps an emergency nurse from not wanting to, you know, ooh, it's scary, it's daunting, it's a lot of work. You know, what are, what are some of the things, the most common things that keep people from wanting to even approach the idea of doing research? Even if they want to find a good answer to a problem or they really want to get something out of it, they just don't want to cross that line and, and you know, even get to Tibet, so to speak. Right, right. Well, you know, I think the idea that you need to have a PhD to do research and and, and you need to have funding and all this other stuff is, is a little bit of overkill, right? So you can, the, what, a, what a doctoral program, what a, what a research PhD does is it gives you tools, right? It gives you processes. It makes the whole process easier um, so that you can get from, oh, this thing is bugging me to, oh, here's, 
the answer, right? So all those tools that you get in a PhD program are really important. Um, but frankly, I stumbled around pretty successfully without them, right? It just takes longer and it's a little messier. So I think the big problem that most people have is the, and this is where I always tell my, my student, my research students, like the front load all your effort into developing the question. Like you have to get the right question. You have to understand what it is you're looking at. And that can take a considerable amount of time. But once you define the problem, the rest of it falls out, right? You'll know what your methods are going to be. You, you know what data you need. You know how to analyze it because you've set up the problem in a way that is answerable, right? So what a lot of research, uh, I, I mean, I field calls like three, four, five a week, right? And people will say, oh, I'm, I'm doing my DNP and I want to talk to you about this project. Okay, fine. Well, I want to work with adolescents. Okay, <laughs> what about them, right? Like they kind of attach themselves either to a population or uh, intervention, right? I wanna, I wanna try this thing. Well, does your problem require that thing or do you just wanna do the thing, right? So a lot of it is, is this Zen, you've gotta have like the Zen of research, right? Where you have to look at the literature, you have to wait for the, the real problem to kind of emerge. And from that emerges the logical intervention, right? Does that make sense, Paul? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right, it's like a total yeah. Zen thing. You jump yeah. in and try to grab onto an intervention before you know if it's appropriate, mm -hmm. you're going to lose your mind. That's where research mm -hmm. becomes really hard because you're trying to cram this square peg into a round hole. And so if you just kind of do the reading and let it kind of bubble up, um, you end up with better problem solving. Mm -hmm. And that's really re what research is. It's problem solving. Yeah. There, so, Paul, would you say that's the same? Have you experienced the same type of thing in terms of where maybe the missteps can be, or you know, it seems bigger than it is, and, oh, it's and people don't know the it. right step? So, so <laughs> when I was in the doctoral program, our director said you would never shove an entire head of broccoli into your face to try to eat it. You would break it off like one floret at a time or a couple florets at a time. I would prefer to put a little ranch dressing or dip on it, you know, and in in, as I'm trying to get it down. And I think the research process is the same way. You, you wouldn't start in the middle of the head of broccoli, right? There's a process. You'd start on the edge and work your way you know, in or however you would do it. With the research process, it's the same way. And, and I want to under, underscore what Lisa said. You have to start with a good question. Because if you start with a solution in mind, you're going you're gonna to miss the big picture. You have to back up. You have to, you have to spend some time. And, and it's actually hard. People think, oh, I could come up with a question in about an hour. Actually, it might take a day or three Weeks. or 10 or, well, yeah, yeah, right. Weeks. Because when you get it, like when I get a research question, and I finally get it. I'm like, I got it. And I fall asleep and I wake up the next morning and I'm like, not really. And then I spend some time tweaking it and I'll go through that process. And even once I'm getting ready to submit this to maybe the institutional review board or maybe the research committee of the, you know, the school or the place where I work. Then it's like actually i need to fix that again like i'm constantly amending that and and yeah. the question is going to drive the intervention and lisa said that and i just want to underscore that if you're it research is really a process you know when your patient comes in and they're acting like they're in a stroke and you send them downstairs to get a ct before you check their blood sugar you missed an opportunity to fix their blood sugar which is making them look like they're having a stroke and the same thing happens in research. You have to stop and follow the process. And the process starts with, you know, start with your question. Right. I think you also have to be really open to what you find, right? So like we did this 
study about fatigue, right? We thought it was about fatigue. Like you always think it's about something and it's about something else. So we, we did a study um, because people had kept coming to us and said like these 12 hour shifts are terrible. Like people can't make decisions, people are exhausted, whatever. So we decided to look at what's the impact of, you know, long shifts on cognitive function, right? So we did a, a, a quantitative piece, right? With the numbers, right? We just looked at what was there. And then we did this qualitative piece where we asked people to tell us stories about what it was like to be tired at work. And what we found out from this study, we we're like, oh yeah, it's uh, terrible to be tired at work. But people, what people told us was, um, this was both a cause and effect of bullying. People are mean, people are tired, tired people are mean. And we were like, wow. <laughs> so now we're on this, now like, oh, now the next thing, right, is let's talk about bullying, right? So we do this study about bullying. We did, we did a theory about bullying because they didn't exist. Right, so we come up with this theory of bullying and nursing and in, in emergency nursing environments, and then we find out that it's really all about PTSD, right? And so what we what started as like, hey, twelve-hour shifts suck, you know, became like, holy crow, this is like the underlying dysfunction of emergency nursing. It was nuts. Right. And yeah. really, it's an investigation is what this turns into, because, you know, whether it's criminal or whether it's in, in a clinical sense, you're starting in one place and you're trying to find your way to the other end of it. And just because you think you know what's at the other end, you're going right. to just follow the path and go where the evidence or the information is going yeah, to take you. Just you. Go. True that. So what, what, what uh, Lisa touched on there, I think, is a good segue into talking about this upcoming series of, uh, you know, we've been calling them conversation series. And I think that's very appropriate here as we look ahead to talking about research and really breaking it down into a number of different episodes that really run from, you know, from what you guys have emphasized here, which is know your question, pick your topic, have a good starting point, because if you don't, you're going to set yourself down a long winding path that may never get you anywhere. Right. But there's other things that are a part of what these, these conversation series episodes are going to be like um, in terms of topics and, you know, anything from storytelling to even process and outcomes. Um, I'll start with Lisa. When you think about the, the bits and pieces that um, this series is going to bring out, what are some of the things that um, really are going to give people that, that good sense of my questions aren't about process, they're not about this, but it's about this. What, what would you say is one of those key elements that uh, the series will talk about that you think will really be insightful for people who are interested in research and want to make those take those next steps? I think that when people, I like to, to think of qualitative and quantitative research as being opposite sides of the same coin, right? So you can obviously answer the same question with both methods, right? You can answer a question with both of those methods. And what we think about, and, and when you think about the grading of evidence, right? When you talk about like, what kind of evidence do you have? And everybody thinks of the randomized controlled trial as this, you know, gold standard objective type of investigation. Like, I would like to talk about how that's not objective at all. Like nothing is necessarily objective and there can be bias in quantitative studies based on the type of question you ask and where you get your data and how you interpret that data. Like it is no more objective in my mind, right? And no less biased in my mind than, uh, than certain types of qualitative research, right? And so to understand that there, that the challenge of research is always questioning everything, right? It's an exercise in epistemology, right? How do I know what I know? How do I know what I know? And to really sit with that um, can be a really um, interesting and, and fabulous way to think about the world, right? Think about problems. 
Paul, same thing. I mean, what, what is the takeaway that, you know, across this series of conversations, what do you think some of the, whether it's a, a small little thing that nobody thinks about or whether it's one of the bigger overarching, you know, do not cross this line danger questions that people use to stay away from getting into research. What is something that uh, you think would be, is a takeaway that will come from the series? So when I've tried to do, let me, let me put it in terms of like house maintenance. When I've tried to do something around the house, like hang a picture and I have a, I have a nail and I have a hammer and I think I'm just going to drive this nail into the wall and hang this picture. And we've got brick walls where I live and the cement doesn't work really well. It chips and you can't drive a nail into a brick and I get frustrated and the picture doesn't get hung. And so I put it back in the office and it sits there for two years. I feel like that picture is like a research project or question. I just don't have the right tools. But if somebody says, Hey, I've got this masonry bit and a high speed drill, let's put a, you know, let's do that and put a sleeve in and then we can put a screw in and we can hang that picture. And all of a sudden the pictures on the wall, I'm like, that wasn't that hard. I just didn't have the right tools. But I don't know that it takes a masonry bit and a high speed drill until I talk to somebody that's done this before. So I'm going to put that in terms of research that sometimes projects get stopped because all I have is a hammer and a nail and I, it's not going to get the project done. But if I talk to somebody that knows all about tools or all about this area or can send me in that direction, suddenly we're partnering and we're doing stuff. And I'm telling you, because I do this in another uh, job, I have I, I teach at University of Louisville, but I'm also um, a nurse scientist at a local hospital. And I'll tell you, without flinching, stretcher side, bedside nurses in the emergency department, they know what needs to get done. And they know the gatekeepers, they know the politics, they know what makes people tick, how to motivate them. I don't know any of that. But I know the institutional review board process. I know how to write it up to be able to get it to their uh, approved by the research committee. I can help them with a publication or a poster presentation. Now they're all first author on all that and they're driving the bus. But when we're partnering, like I know the tools in the toolbox, they know all the other processes. I think that's really where it, it ideally pans out and, and you get your question answered. What, what I'm taking away from all this is that there's no cookie cutter answers to how to do research well, just the same way there's no cookie cutter reason to not get involved in research in the first place. Is that yeah, fair? If for you, both have you? A, you have a question, you got to answer it, right? Right, exactly. So uh, with, with all that in mind, um, you know, there's a lot to unpack always when there's something involving research, but um, you know, I think the conversation series is definitely gonna have a, a, a way to give people some different insights and, and make it digestible. I mean, and you know, um, I'll just throw it out to both of you here and, and maybe Lisa first, how important is it to, you know, to make things digestible and demystify the idea that research is, you know, um, like was like you mentioned earlier, it's not just PhDs doing it. Anybody can do it with the right tools, as Paul mentioned. But um, you know, really, what 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 would you offer as that first little bit of motivation to get somebody you know to act on it and to rely on something other than just what they're thinking about it? There's so much more. There's there's a need to turn to other people for it. What you know is it just jump? Is that is that your well, advice? Well, you know, I think research is is a community enterprise, and so if people can, um, you know, sort of fit themselves into a community, whether it's a practice community or a research community or a teaching community, then um, I think the process of kind of nibbling, as Paul said, kind of nibbling away at, at a problem and getting some very basic tools, right? How do you make a question? How do you read the literature to know what's evidence and what's not? How do you know what's a good study and what's not? Like, I think the idea that most people have is that, well, it's published, it must be true. 
mostly, right? I mean, there is peer review and, and there's definitely a structure, but there are studies that are better than others, right? There are studies that create better evidence than others and more reliable evidence. And to sort of teach people first, like how do you read other people's research? Like how did these people answer this question or solve this problem? Um, I think is, is the beginning of demystifying the process because it's not something that happens over there. It's stuff you're doing in front of you every day. Why is this patient doing this? Well, let me go look at some data. Let me look at their vital signs. Let me look at their physical exam. Let me see if that's the problem. If that's the problem, this should work. If that doesn't work, maybe that's not the problem, right? Like we're doing this process all the time. Yeah. Paul, I'll give you the final word. What's, uh, what, what's, that, what's that first step? What, uh, what would you suggest outside of listening to the conversation series, but what else is out there that you would say as a first bit of advice to people who may be on the fence or don't want to even approach the fence when it comes to research? Well, I think, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, which, how I'm going to phrase it, and I think I'm going to go with dive into the literature. So if you're working in a hospital, probably your hospital has access to one of the databases that you can type in a few simple search terms and see if the solution isn't already out there. I think people seem stymied. They, they think, oh, I really wish I had an answer to this question. Well, the answer might already be there, but you don't know until you dig in to the, to the literature and it is not rocket science. If you can do CPR on a patient, if you can do an enema, you can do a literature search. There is no magic to that. I mean, I, and I teach the same thing. I teach nursing students. I'm like, I, because I put it on basic level, I think people want to say, oh, that's, you know, a literature search. I wouldn't even know where to start. Well, somebody can guide you and you can, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And then you might actually find that there's solutions there that don't even require a research project. It's more of an evidence-based translation project. But if you don't get into the literature to figure out what's already out there, it waste a lot of time. Exactly. And, and it's just such a great place to start. Lisa Wolf, Paul Clark, appreciate you both being a part of the ENA podcast to talk nursing research. I appreciate you being here today. Dan, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Dan. So with that, that'll do it for this episode of the ENA podcast. And I do encourage you to keep an eye on ENA social media and the ENA website as we start to roll out in the, the coming weeks. These, uh, these mini episodes, a conversation series that will really focus on how to engage in research and answer some of those hard questions that some of you out there listening may have about research, but also to, uh, to bring to light some of the things that both Paul and Lisa talked about here today uh, that make it about things as simple as coming up with the right question and doing some of that literature research, but then getting into those, those more in-depth steps to really get you from the, from the start to the finish line. Once again, a thank you to, to Paul and Lisa for being a part of uh, the podcast today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next ENA podcast.